Back when we started this series, uh, Dick, one of our elders, just read the text uh, for us, chapter 3 of Romans, verses 9 to 20. We're in a little, a, a little Roman series, chapters 1 to 3, and back when we started it, I told you that without a doctrine of sin, we don't understand the righteousness of God, uh, we don't understand the necessity of the gospel, and furthermore, we don't get grace in the sense that we don't understand it. We don't follow where grace takes us. We cheapen grace without a competent doctrine of sin. But we also don't get people without a competent doctrine of sin. And this, this series is called People Skills, Why the Doctrine of Sin Matters. It's very intentional in my titling there to keep people and sin together. Not that people are just such great sinners, though that's true as we've established in chapters 1 and 2, but that we're talking about People made in the image and likeness of God being great sinners, and so God still cares very much for his creation. And if we don't have a competent doctrine of sin, uh, what ends up happening is that we externalize sin from ourselves, Uh, we become moralistic, Uh, moralists are people who say, I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, we become relativistic. A relativist is somebody who says, whatever you want to do, whatever's right in your own eyes, as long as you're not hurting anybody, that's the only wrong thing. Uh, we see in this passage that the Lord Jesus, through his apostle, through the psalmist before him, for verse 10 is a quote from a psalm, actually a quote from two psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. The rest of the passage down to verse 18 is a collection of Old Testament quotes. But he says in verse 10, none is righteous. Jesus equalizes on this doctrine of sin. And uh, this isn't saying that we can't tell the difference between right and wrong, okay? Uh, This isn't saying that people aren't guilty of spectacular evil and we can't say so. No. Real evil is done in the world, and we can recognize it. Evil does intensify around some ungodly positions that people take. Not all sin is the same in effect or consequence. I've been saying that for weeks. But without a competent doctrine of sin, our people's skills will suffer. We will forget that the line, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. We'll see evil as more the domain of this person over here or that person who's not of us in some way. However we draw those lines, without a competent doctrine of sin, our people's skills suffer And we actually create barriers for the gospel. And none of those barriers are too difficult for God to overcome. But when you think about having one life, why would you want to create barriers for the gospel with the one life that you have? Why would you, why would you want to be someone? I don't think any of us do, but why would you want to be someone who God's constantly having to go over and around and can't go with and through because, uh, you create these barriers? A competent doctrine of sin is what equalizes all people in the sense of verse 10. No one is righteous, no, not one. And as well, it develops this, I'll call it a barrier-busting empathy for our mutual plight that all people, as verse 9 says, are under sin. But this is where we do a little bit of a pivot in this series because we've been thinking about primarily how sin affects us as individuals. And we've spent weeks on this. So we're going to spend one week today, one Sunday, on thinking about sin from a more institutional consideration. 
Because if our doctrine of sin is merely about individual flaws and faults, if it's merely about person, then it's underdeveloped. It's not competent. Sin is personal, but it's also a power at work in the world. Sin is like a, an electrical current coursing through the world system. And by power, in this context, we mean the kinds of things here in this collection of Old Testament references, verses 10 through 18. The corrupting influence of sin, how it gets into cultural patterns and social systems. Uh, the interest here in vengeance. Vengeance wants to, to overpower. Everything in chapters 1 and 2 has led to this emphatic statement here in chapter 3, verse 9, that all of us are under sin. Last week, verses 1 through 8, we took questions. We get to verse 9 here, and this passage that follows is something like an exclamation point. Bad thing about exclamation points, though, is it can sound like you're speaking in all caps, right? which is the, the, the literary equivalent of being yelled at. That's not the tone of this passage. This passage, it, it is decidedly a negative review of human nature, but the tone of it is not yelling at us. And actually, the tone of it is, come, let us reason together. Why are things this way? They're this way because of the power of sin. And when I say sin in this message, I mean sin like a capital S sin. Power is a capital P power. How sin overpowers. Note again at the end of verse 9. Note the word under. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, that can be rendered also, everybody, all are under sin. Note that word under. Sin is personal. It's, it's, it's present in us. It, it's part of fallen human nature. It is fallen human nature. But sin is also a power at work in the world. This is what we see in effect, the power of sin, that we're under sin and what follows from that. This is what we see in effect in verses 9 through 20. When Paul writes at the end of verse 9, all are under sin, he means the power of sin that wields even the law of God like a club. Look down at verse 20. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. Sin even uses the law of God to, to, to club, as it were, to show us how far away from God in the, in the natural who we are, we are. Now, evangelicals, who we are, by and large, evangelical people get the individual aspect of sinfulness. What is underdeveloped for us is the power aspect which is to talk about the systemic nature of sin. We don't think enough about how capital S sin exerts itself over cultural patterns and embeds itself in social structures. We've been trained to see sin solely in terms of individuality, but sin, capital S sin, it gets into structural patterns uh, like racism, I fully realize not everything called racism now qualifies, but racism is a cultural pattern. It's about power and opportunity dynamics centered around color. Uh, classism is a cultural pattern that sin exerts power over. Classism is about socioeconomic rank where you have elites in society. 
of all ethnicities, white and black, just to put it very generally, the elites, white and black, versus the poor, white and black. Again, I'm just putting things very generally here. Within racism and classism, you have what's called nativism. People most unlike you are not welcome where you are. That's nativist. Sin exerts itself over these and other cultural patterns. Jesus said, the poor we will always have with us. Why is that? Because sin exerts itself over cultural patterns and embeds itself in social structures with all its resulting social discord and division and injustices. This passage, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we're going to key on verses 10 to 18 because what's in verse 9 and what's in verses 19 and 20 we've really talked about already fleshed out in some other texts. But in looking at this passage, it's our best opportunity in this series to talk about sin as a power at work in the world system. And so we're going to take verses 10 through 18 from this particular angle. And being that verses 10 through 18 is a collection of Old Testament quotations, we're not looking at anything new. We're looking at the realities of human systems that have long been with us. Governing systems, legal systems, societal systems, the way they're organized and the way they function, educational systems, and so on. Now, I know, I know when some hear me say racism or refer to cycles of poverty, they bristle because they associate these concerns with liberalism, either classic liberalism or the illiberalism like we see in a lot of radical activism now, shouting down free speech on college campuses, for instance, safe spaces and trigger warnings and such, is the stuff of illiberalism, which is just all about uh, tarring and feathering. It's, it's just blaming and condemning people like most of us, really. And you hear that, and it makes you, and it makes you angry. And I understand that. When you feel like people are willfully misrepresenting what you believe in and misconstruing what you stand for, to become strident, just as strident as they're being to you, to become just as strident to them in opposition to them is very appealing. It's even, it's even very seductive. But if we dismiss social justice concerns, for instance, If we dismiss social justice out of hand as something liberal and therefore not for us, if we're more conservatively minded, we're demonstrating the point, actually, that evangelicals, by and large, have an underdeveloped doctrine of sin as it pertains to how sin, capital S, sin, works over and in and through cultural patterns and social structures. We're working from a blind spot. When we talk about sin exerting itself over cultural patterns and embedding in social systems, such as we have on display here in verses 10 through 18, which we'll begin to unpack, if your reflex hearing this from me is to associate what I'm doing in this sermon, oh, he's about to, to, to engage us in white guilt, or Cole's buying into cultural Marxism, or he's about to give us a social uh, gospel or, or such as that. Those are deflector shields. And I know us pretty well, and I've had conversations with a lot of us, and I know how these things work. We, too, can be vested in identity politics. The identity politics that we don't like on one side of the aisle are just as prevalent on our side, whatever side you're on. Predominantly, this room is going to be more conservative. 
But gospel-informed people, we need to watch that, lest we be so emotionally invested in our own brand of identity politics that we can't tell the difference anymore between a heart of God concern and echo chamber allegiance. For sake of letting the Spirit of God hone our people skills for the gospel in an era in which the church is becoming more and more marginalized. When we went through First Peter a couple of years ago, I taught it from the angle of living abroad at home. That is, we have to learn what it's like to be an exile and a stranger in our own land. But let's consider in this interest of, of getting the gospel to people how sin gets into systems. And this, this passage is a good one before us to do this. And, and I know what I've already said, just the mere mention sometimes in a room like this can engender strong reactions, though hopefully you will find me contending very graciously here for the point. In fact, I think of what Chuck Smith, Chuck Smith was the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, he's with the Lord now. I, figured, I think about what he said, when, when you come to a strong personal conviction on one side of an issue... Chuck Smith said, please grant us the privilege of first seeing how that has helped you become more Christ-like in your nature, and then we will judge whether we need to come over to the same persuasion. I think it's a very Christian way to operate. As we look at this passage, in particular this mash of Old Testament references in verses 10 to 18 here, what are we seeing? Well, it's not not Christ-likeness. In fact, uh, just listen to a contrastive passage We'll come back to chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Paul's words elsewhere. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, our theme today which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And you say, well, he's talking to the church there. If you go on down there, it's Colossians, the context of Colossians 3 and 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. How differently does that read compared to what we've got here? I mean, if these were two lands, which one would you rather live in? Well, clearly we'd rather live in the one in Colossians, but we've got this one in Romans 3 here. And this fact, this stuff in Romans 3, this is antichrist belief and behavior. This is belief and behavior that seals itself off from Jesus. It's actually like I've never even known who he is if I go with this stuff in verses 10 through 18. These are toxic ways that sin and exerts itself over cultural patterns, embeds itself in social structures. Why structures and patterns? Because we're looking at the collective. Look at it, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written in the Old Testament, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The parts make a whole. And we are the parts, we are the whole, and the whole is institutions and systems and patterns and structures. So let's, let's take these one at a time. I've been giving you two things up to here, and let's break them down. First, sin exerts itself over cultural patterns. How so? Well, in verses 13 and 14, through toxic speech through how we conduct ourselves as people verbally in the world. 
not just the personal, but the cultural abuse. Verses 13 and 14 is the cultural abuse. of. Do you realize that if you come from an evolutionary perspective, human speech is the one thing you, you can't account for? Now, I don't think evolution can account for the way species change. It can't. But the one thing they know they can't account for is language, the language ability of human beings, our speech capacity. God gave us this for good, speech. In fact, God's ultimate good is what? The Word becomes flesh. The Word becomes flesh. But sin as a power corrupts cultural speech pattern these ways. Look at it, verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. It's the picture of you want to bury people. You want to put them down. Uh, they use their tongues to deceive. That one's self-evident. The venom of asps is under their lips. You, you think of the, the snake that's biting. It comes from a, a defensive posture. Or it's it, you, the venom of ass, but venom is often an angry sort of image. This is, this is taking in so much outrage that what comes out is all this anger and frustration. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, verse 14. A lot of us in the room here, even if we're staunchly conservative, we're likely tired of all the partisan bickering that we're subjected to and the state of discourse as it is atrophied in our country, in our national context. You know, no one can process constant outrage and not be changed by downward degrees. You just aren't made to. You can't live angry. You can't listen to outrage on the airwaves day in and day out and day in and day out and it not affect you, it not change you. You can't. The church of Jesus Christ is not the domain of either the left or the right. It shouldn't be co-opted by progressives or conservatives because if you get co-opted, you live in a blind spot. You're missing something. You may be missing more than just something. We're given images here. They're vivid images. Look at verses 13 and 14. Let's just pick out one line here uh, from verse 13. The venom of asps is under their lips, asps being snakes. Have you ever heard of Mithridatism? I'm not going to try to spell it for you. It's a real thing. Mithridatism is self-immunization from the effects of poison. Mithridatism is self-immunization from the effects of poison, usually by self-administering toxic concoctions in gradually increasing amounts because the goal of the Mithridatist is to make himself impervious to toxins, and the way he does that is by toxifying himself. The Mithridatist that I read about collects poisonous snakes from around the world. And at intervals in the year, he goads the snakes into biting him. And uh, it's his quest to become the one, one person alive, still alive, uh, who is immune to, this is his goal, he wants to be immune to every neurotoxin and hematoxin found in snake venom. Interesting guy. This guy bears multiple bite marks all over his body. Discolorations and dead spots on his extremities. He's got two or three fingers that are permanently ossified, meaning he can no longer bend them. What's the point? One cannot be unaffected by toxins. You might survive them. 
but they change you and not for the better. They leave their marks. What troubles me about our cultural patterns now is that it it seems like there is just this steadfast refusal to recognize that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Not just those on the left or those from other religions, but through yours and my heart too. And this means our systems and our structures are broken. Not just people in them, but the structures themselves. And it's not because of just what they, whoever you consider they to be, what they've done to them and not, but also because of what we've done and don't do as well. This incessant need to demonize That every person, every politician, even fictional characters either side with the angels where, of course, we are or are from the devil's deepest pit where, of course, everybody I can't stand comes from. This is deeply, this is a deeply toxic way for gospel-informed people to live and it sets up barriers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's cultural Mithridatism. We're poisoning ourselves and calling it principled. Watch what you intake. Watch what defines you. Watch what you go to. There are social issues that are really important that connect to human flourishing and greater goods. We ought to do everything we can to protect life in the womb, for instance. That's been a hallmark of evangelicalism, political engagement. And it ought to be still. And our pro-lifeness also extends to advocating for just treatment of immigrants. There are a host of things that are worth our being politically engaged with, even politically exercised about. But the great need of evangelicals going forward, it is speech patterned, actually. The great need is we've got to put the evangelism back in evangelicalism. And that means we have to recommit ourselves to gospel clarity over political expediency. What is in verses 13 and 14 is incivility that is reinforced hostilities. The chronic pitting of us versus them. Yes, there is us versus them. There are issues where people take different sides and they're important. And times we have to fight for what's right, truly. But this chronic pitting of us versus them, and if you're them, I have nothing but contempt for you. It would be like somebody, this is a silly example, but it'd be like some, some, some of us do this politically. It, it would be like if you walked around saying, chocolate, 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 that's all I eat, that's all I want, that's all I'll smell. I'm a chocolate guy. You go, wouldn't that be a little weird to interact with somebody like that? And people do that politically. Conservative, conservative, conservative. That's all I want. That's all I listen to. That's all I hear. It's an echo chamber. And it doesn't, it doesn't make us better. It makes us actually just like those people that we think we're opposing. We're coming just like them. And nothing moves down the field. The ball's, it's like fourth and ten. You've not moved the ball. And you're, and you're not going to even punt. You're just going to hold the ball and try to run the other direction. And then do a touchdown dance on the 50-yard line. That's how goofy it looks. See, it's a toxic cultural pattern. It's possible. Look at the life of Jesus Christ. He had convictions. He stood on them. And what was he? He was socially generous. He welcomed everybody because he was going to change their life. 
You know, when you look at these verbal forms, verses 13 and 14, don't think they always look like their most extreme expression. They don't. Uh, There's a cartoon I like. It has two dogs wearing nice suits sitting in a nice restaurant. And the one dog is saying to the other, "It's it's not enough that we succeed. Cats must also fail. (laughs) that's really the cultural spirit sin capitalizes on in verses 13 and 14 it's vengeful whether it's quiet or loud whether it draws a lot of attention to himself or it works behind the scenes but vengeance is his it's not ours watch what you what you take in for vengeance People of Jesus can and do oppose evil ideologies and people in their employ. But we do this as people who first seek to get the planks out of our own eye before we go after others. Sin exerts itself over cultural patterns, speech patterns being predominant in this passage. But sin also embeds itself deep into social structures. Verse 15 and following, their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That statement right there, verse 18, is at the heart of every injustice. Behind every injustice is something of God is not taken seriously. That's what it means to fear the Lord, to take Him seriously. Our judicial system is an example of a social structure, and it's the best in the world, hands down. I would rather be tried here than anywhere else in the world. But it's easy for me to say that because I've never languished in our judicial system. Nor have you likely. Which means you have no reason to distrust it. But if you're poor, if you're white or black or Latino poor, and you get into trouble, you will languish there. And you will languish disproportionately and you will languish generationally. Not for everybody, but for most. And thereby, you'll distrust that system and you'll distrust law enforcement that represents that system. I don't know what to do about this. I'm mentioning something to you that I don't have answers for, except I have within the last couple of years, I've come to understand that this is a gospel issue. It is something the gospel has something to say to. Not just as a three-point presentation as we go and share our faith in the jails and move between cells, though it is that too. But the whole way we see and understand what's just and cycles of poverty and all those, all that's within that, for a long time I had an underdeveloped sense of social justice. And and I don't think I've liberalized, I've hopefully Christianized. As the gospel finds more space to move in me, it begins to renovate ways that I, I was looking at things, but then ways I wasn't even looking at something. I was turning a blind eye, that's not my issue. I know this, I know the two greatest justice systems in antiquity, the Jewish and the Roman, both of which built our American system foundationally, Jesus was failed by both of them. Think about it. Both the Jewish and the Roman justice systems, the best in the world, failed God himself when he was in their custody. Doesn't it stand to reason that he would have some, some earned empathy for those it fails today, often along class and race lines? If you're bristling here, sounds like you're for Black Lives Matter 
What about blue lives? What about all lives? Can I just kindly ask you, why do we do that? Why do these deflector shields come up for us? Why do we go to our echo chamber? Why do we go to our whataboutisms? Why do we participate in polarization? How did we learn to argue this way? Well, if you're for that, it must mean you're for this. How did we get so binary and conspiratorial and condemnatory and call that operating from truth? You know, I know for a lot of us, I know where it comes from. For a lot of us, we have such a fear of liberalism that we're always afraid of the Trojan horse and the slippery slope. It's the anxiety of conservatively minded people who want to feel in control of things. But listen, friends, it's not liberal to name the ways sin embeds in social structures and cycles. It's gospel worldview. I could have treated verses 10 to 18 this morning very generally, raising no cultural flashpoints as examples at risk to myself. Boy, the emails I'll get this week. But we're too good at compartmentalizing our beliefs and shielding ourselves from anything that smacks of what we disagree with. And I just think in doing that, we miss something of Jesus. One of the great legacies of Billy Graham, who I admired greatly, was that he wasn't co-opted. The man had his blind spots, and he admitted that. He was one of the most humble of gospel leaders we've ever had. But the, the gospel that Billy Graham preached was for people on the left, and it was for people on the right. And fundamentalists criticized Billy Graham for that, and mainline liberals criticized Billy Graham for that which I think is becoming, is, is becoming the way you can tell that you're doing it right. <laughs> when one side can't co-opt you. But I love the story when, when Graham accepted an invitation from a group of churches in Chicago to hold a crusade there. This is years ago. Some uh, more fundamentalist um, styled preachers in the city got together to to. to to establish their take on Billy. He's coming to our city. Are we going to welcome him here or not? Are we going to participate in the crusade or not? And A.W. Tozer was among these guys. Some of you know that name. And Tozer, after hearing the back and forth in the room, and Tozer was a fundamentalist, he counseled them this, brothers, let's let our hair down. Here's what he said. You could stand all the fundamentalists in the United States in one line and start them preaching and they would have less effect than Billy Graham would have just clearing his throat. In other words, Tozer, though he was a committed fundamentalist, had enough sense, enough gospel sense to get out of God's way using Billy Graham. Evangelicals have long felt this aching need to rescue the country from itself, and it's fueled a lot of our politicking. We've stood and said the country needs revival, and we're right about that. That's true. The country does. But so do we. Evangelicals need revival and we need reformation. We need Jesus to rescue us from ourselves. There is a time and a place for judging the nation's sins and calling them to repentance, but the nation isn't really listening to us right now. Why not? They see our blind spots. They see we've been co-opted. They see an anemic grace among us. They see that we participate in our own ostracism. But even so, I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful, actually. Because this is not a problem for God. I mean, 
Go back to verse 9. Look at what he did about the ultimate problem, that all are under sin. Talk about exclamation points. We come to it in the passage that follows. Look at verse 21, just a preview of what's next. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The one who lives the life you should have lived but did not, would not, not just that you couldn't. The one who died the death, you would have died under the judgment of God, but now you won't because you're in him. There is no distinction. Here he says it again, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. What do you do with sinful people? Ask them to do better? Tell them to pull themselves up? Or you give them a gift, you give them a kiss through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation means he satisfies the wrath. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, which would crush us without the gospel. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, the patience of God with us. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God writes himself into our own sin story. Isn't that good? We're redeemed not to lord anything over to people, but to point to a Lord who redeems and who calls the redeemed, us, to repentance ongoing. Repentance isn't something you just practice at the point of faith. And sometimes repentance is most needed for where you think you're right. Our Lord said that we're salt and light in the world. Remember those two great images he used? Salt and light. There's a grace greater than all our sin. That sounds cliche, but it's true. All sin, every sin, sin individual, sin institutional. But that grace of God, it works inside social structures and cultural patterns too, inside systems and institutions where Christians don't hide their light, but they shine it, and they don't shine it in people's eyes. But they use their light to show how the way and the truth and the life of Jesus Christ has something to do with everything. And that grace of God goes to work salting as well. We always think of salt as a preservative. But in actuality, when you scatter salt over a field, which is what armies did when they came through places, this is where people would have gone. When Jesus used this analogy, when you salt a field, what have you done? You've made nothing, nothing can grow there. There is a grace that brings holy ruin when Christians salt everything that sets itself in rival affection and allegiance to Jesus. Do you realize what a, what a fertile time this is for gospel work? Even though evangelicals are, are not seen as, as however we're seen, however they see us. Most of the people we encounter who need the Lord are actually between idols, as one writer put it. They've lost faith in one thing because if you put your faith in something short of Jesus Christ, it will disillusion you at some point. And people know they're disillusioned. And, and in that disillusionment, they go to another thing and another thing and another thing. They're always between idols. The church on mission, concerned for the things that concern the heart of God under the direction of the whole counsel of God as we have in Scripture, we're looking for people between idols. Because our work in the world is to salt the ground every idol stands on. 
and to show that it's, it's, it's vapid and it doesn't work and, and point people to higher ground where the fruits of repentance take deep root and God makes a people for himself who are nurtured and nourished by him and, and do the kinds of things in the world that nobody does and say the reason we're doing it is because of him. But we've got to salt our own idols first. If our throat, look at it, and we're done. If our throat, verse 13, is an open grave, if we're putting people down, if we're wanting to bury people always, if we love the political, because we bury our enemies, if we have a hankering for that, if, if, if we use our tongues to deceive, if the venom of asp is under our lips, if we're, if we're ingesting all this outrage, if our, if our mouth is full of curses and bitterness and the rest of it, verses 15 to 18, let repentance and a return to the gospel begin with the church. He says in verse 19, we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. He's saying whatever scripture says, it says to the people who believe it first. That's us. Where is our transformation? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Look at that, the way verse 19 reads. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that, here's the purpose clause, so that every mouth may be stopped. How does every mouth get stopped? When they see the transformation. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. And who, who is present as people, active and engaged. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We're not showing our sin to glory in it. We're not showing our sin to double down on it. We're not showing our sin to wallow in it or despair over it. We are showing our sin to put in the work of repentance in order to neutralize it. We are showing our sin to recognize that the righteousness of God is held out to us as a friend. As one who wants us, is for us. No longer an enemy. Again, I said it earlier, the righteousness of God would crush us if not for the gospel. In the gospel, God extends his friendship to us. And you want the best for your friends. Let's pray. Stand with me. And we'll sing a chorus and then we will be dismissed. Thank you, Father, for this truth. It's hard truth. It's not pleasant to read about sin and ourselves in sin and others and the world system and all of it. But Lord, thank you that that's not the final word. We've said it many times in this series. Sin doesn't have the final word. The final word is capital G, grace. Through Jesus, His grace, He owns it, He vends it, He gives it. Lord, guard us in our ways. Help us to see our place in the world as uh, people who are being light and being salt, as is our calling. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.